This morning, I'd like to start out our time with some scripture that always encourages me. And I hope that it will give you some encouragement. I get tired physically, emotionally, and I must confess spiritually sometimes. I get tired. It seems that our prayer list gets longer and longer. And sometimes it's a struggle. So when I feel that, I go to the scripture, a verse that in Isaiah that uh, gives me encouragement, lifts me up. And I think we all need that. I think we need to be lifted up. We need to be encouraged. So as we begin this morning, I'm going to read from Isaiah, and we'll begin to pray. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning, as we begin this time, Lord, the things of the world weigh heavy on our shoulders. The Ukrainian conflict with Russia, Father, the people that are displaced, that are hurt, that have died, Father, through this war, the people in Burkina Faso, Father, that are under continuous pressure of death if they don't change. Many other countries, Father, that are under persecution because they love you. Father, protect them. We lift them up to you at this time, Father. We thank you for the people that are there on the grounds helping, Father, as Danny and Emmy and their families and friends reach out to the refugees, not only those that have come across the border, but going into the Ukraine to support those people. Father, may we lift all of our missionaries, all of the people that are there on the ground. But Father, strengthen us in our prayer life that we may lift them up and you would hear our call. Father, we thank you for being here with us this morning. Lord, you are here. Father, I lift each one of the people that are here this morning at home watching. Father, I pray that each one will have a good day, a good week. 
But Father, those that are suffering at this time because of a loss of a loved one, because of a disease that is eating away at their family, Father, finances. Father, just help not only the individuals, but help the family. Help them get through these times. Because, Father, though there is much wrong here in this world, there is much joy. That joy begins with you. Father, I lift up our leadership here at Fellowship Bible. Lord, help them through this time of the sanctuary being repaired. Father, it's a difficult time. They're all misplaced. They're doing things that they're not used to. But Father, that's okay. Father, you're leading. So Father, we just thank you. I ask you to be with them. Give them patience. Give them strength to do another day, do another time. Father, we just lift them up to you. We thank you for them. We thank you for their service. We thank you for all people that serve here at this church. Father, give us a heart of servant. Help, allow us to help others. Father, may we not miss the opportunities that you give us today, tomorrow, and the weeks to come. May we grasp onto your opportunity. May we share with others. May your kingdom increase, Father. We thank you, Father. We praise you. But Father, most of all, we love you. In Jesus' precious name. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us for 1030 worship uh, this morning. Uh, the first thing we need to know is uh, all the stuff going on two weeks from today for Easter weekend. And I'm going to keep being repetitive about this because I know it could be confusing. But between Friday night and Saturday morning, two weeks from now, Easter weekend, we've got three services in three different locations. So we've got to figure this out so that everybody's in the right place at the right time. Friday night. April 15th, 6 o'clock, Good Friday service in this room, in this building, Good Friday, okay? That is Friday night. We would love for you to be, the, to be here. It will be a simple, short service as we celebrate the cross together. That's more of a, a somber service as we really lean into the fullness of what Jesus did on the cross. Then Sunday morning at 7.15, and this, they, we don't have a slide for this, but Sunday morning 7.15, there will be a sunrise service at Grace Presbyterian Church that is a joint service between our, our church, Grace Presbyterian, and Doug Gap Baptist, which is right across the street from us. If you don't know where Grace Pres is, not that much farther. It's just right around the corner. Three services in the Doug Gap area, having a service outside by the pond in front of Grace Presbyterian Church, 7.15, sunrise, on Easter Sunday. So we'd love for you to be there for that as well. And then the big one is Easter Sunday, 1030, our main service, one service. We will not do 915 that morning. We have capacity. We have space to get everybody together in one service. So that will be 1030 Easter morning at Walnut Hill Farm on the north side of town. So we want you to be at all three, but especially at Walnut Hill at 10.30, and that, that one, you can bring anybody you want. We don't have to worry about capacity at all. We don't have to worry about 
um, you know, how we're going to fit everybody. So we want you to invite friends, family, whoever, um, to celebrate, to just celebrate, not just the cross, but the empty tomb, and to celebrate the opportunity that for the first time in a long time, we're able to have one worship service um, in our church community of everybody together. So uh, please join us for that. Now, this week, a couple things to know. Deacon balloting starts today. So if you didn't make your way in through the gym, make your way out through there and get your ballots in your envelope. If you're a member, you have an envelope with your name on it. And please be diligent about reading through the biblical qualifications on the back and then circling the appropriate names. We have a number of deacons to, to add to the team. We're looking at between six and eight to add in. And so we want you to really prayerfully consider who you would nominate, but also prayerfully can pray, pray about the entire process, that God would raise up the right men to serve in this important office. Deacons serve two-year terms. So it's a big commitment. It's a time commitment. It's a responsibility commitment. We want to make sure we are selecting the right men, and we want God to be blessing that process. Um, and then when that process is completed, we'll, we'll have an ordination where we will ordain our one new elder, and our uh, if we have any new deacons, we'll, we'll commission those guys together. And then next Sunday, I want to let you know that in this service at 1030, we have a special guest joining us, Nick and Julia Brown and their family. Um, we have been preparing to send them to South Asia for um, about a year now. We've been partnering with them as, they, as they've been raising funds, going through all the visa and the training and those last-minute concerns. Um, Nick spoke to our congregation twice last summer, once in June and once in August at our missions conference, so some of you may remember him. But he's bringing the whole family next Sunday as they are being commissioned, and they are moving officially in early May, and so it will be their last opportunity to be with us for worship before they go. So join us next Sunday to prayerfully send them out. Also, um, happy spring break, and spring break means that no Awana and no uh, regular youth ministry meeting tonight, and so uh, if you have kids in those ministries, you'll have heard from AJ and Rika already on those details, but for tonight, uh, none of our normal um, kids and youth ministry programming. So we're going to jump into the Word here, but, but we're going to do something else first, okay? So everybody, gotta, you got to get ready here. We're going to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22, but we're going to have a little fun first. Luke 22 verse 39 is where we'll pick up our, our passage and our study of following Jesus and, and where this passage is going to take us is to a place of sorrow or or agony, and a place of calm. Because in Luke 22, you see Jesus portray both sorrow and calm. And the juxtaposition of the two and how he moves from one to the other is exceptional and is something that we're going to spend some time unpacking together. But first, I, I, wanna, I want us to talk about this one word that is so significant in this passage, and it is the word agony. And when you think about agony... You may have multiple different types of agony that might come to mind. You might think first of physical pain, and there is a type of agony which is physical. You might, you might think of emotional pain, and there is a type of pain that is emotional that can be described as agony. Or you might think spiritually, that there is a sense of spiritual despair, sorrow that is so significant that you might call it agony. But to illustrate how we use and define agony in multiple terms, I have a picture and a video to show you. So last Saturday, there was a group of us that did something crazy. 
Okay? And, and just to be clear, I knew full well what I was getting myself into because a, a, a group of us that had some overlap, not exactly the same people, did it four years ago, and I lived to tell the tale. So, therefore, this time around, I was one of the instigators to help get some more people involved in this. So that's a, a few of us on the screen there, and um, some of them you might know, some of them you might not. They're not all from our church, but, but that's the, the eight of us that ran the Savage Race in Dallas, Georgia, just Saturday of last week. But when you do something hard, there's risk. And, and with risk comes reward. And when you risk to get out of your comfort zone, to challenge yourself, to do something hard, there's, there's, there's a great sense of accomplishment that can come when you really succeed and when you get it. So crossing over the finish line to something like that is is an exceptional sense of accomplishment that we did this. We made it. We didn't all stay together. Some of us did it at different speeds. But we did it. And every single one of those people crossed over the finish line with a great sense of accomplishment. But where the agony comes in is the agony of defeat. Because not all of us completed every single step of the way. So lucky for you guys today... Before we get really, really serious in this passage, we're going to have a little bit of fun with some play-by-play. So I'm going to have the, the, the video, the guys in the video van cue it up, and we're going to do some play-by-play here. This is a, a big guy, and uh, when I say big guy, if you're listening on audio after the fact, this is me on the screen, okay? But um, when I say this is a big guy, I mean big in all the wrong ways for what he's about to do. So here we go. Let's cue... Let's cue it up and see what happens here. This guy's about to run up this wall, and here we go. We, I use the term running loosely here. And now, we don't have a lot of grip here, but we, we're pulling. We're going to get there, okay? Let's see what happens. The shoes are worthless at this point, but look, we got one hand up, okay? Two hands up. Now let's see what happens. And just for good measure, fall, the double fall, the slide down, and then the stumble at the end, and now that picture's going to stay up there for longer than I want it to, I'm sure. But we can, we can move on. I, I demonstrate that for a couple reasons. Number one, so that you never think I take myself too seriously. That's the first goal. But also number two, because it illustrates this, this challenge of wanting to accomplish something. And you have two kinds of agony on display in that, in that video. Because number one, I'm just going to tell you, that really hurt there was some physical agony. I still have, have some wounds on my arm, my, my knees, just sliding that way down. It, it feels super smooth when you're trying to put your feet on it, but when you slide your body down, it doesn't feel smooth at all. It feels really rough. So that hurt. There's physical pain involved. But there's also just the discouragement of, of recognizing that, you know, just so you know, four years ago, I, I made it over that wall. But, but, that, but this time, I was right there, and, and I was so dead at the end of it that though I had the grip, my arms just could not do it. And the agony of being close to the goal and not really being able to physically just get the rest of the way over was discouraging. And it communicates to us that in English, we use this word agony in multiple ways. It can refer to physical agony, sure. It can also refer to emotional pain. It can also refer to a spiritual distance that you feel. And in this passage, the word agony is used of Jesus. And it's used in a much more somber way than the way I just communicated it to you. Because with Jesus, 
This is the beauty of this passage is that Jesus' experience of sorrow and agony is so that we would not have that experience. So the lightness of the way we're able to talk about our sorrows, even sorrows much more, much more significant than that simple one, we can talk about those as things that pass, as things that cause great pain and, and great agony for us in the moment. But because of the significance of what Jesus suffered, the significance of what we suffer becomes insignificant in its, very, in its very nature because it is temporal. Because it is a limited suffering that is limited by time that comes to an end. Now verse 39 of Luke 22 is where we pick up on Jesus experiencing real sorrow. And that's where we'll go for the first part of this passage. But then as we get later on, we're going to see Jesus just all of a sudden change. And it's, it's like Jesus turns on a dime emotionally. And he moves from great depth of agony and sorrow to just an incredible sense of calm. And it's stunning when you see it in the passage. So verse 39, we're going to see first Jesus' agony and sorrow. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. A recap of where we were last week. We were in the upper room last week as the disciples and Jesus were celebrating the Passover meal and Jesus was instituting the new version of the Passover, the Lord's Supper. And Judas left early. Judas left early to go betray him. But the rest of the disciples remained with Jesus in the room and then they all left together to go to the Mount of Olives. What we've said for the last couple of weeks is that this last week of Jesus' life, they were camping out on the Mount of Olives. This is where they were staying at night in tents on the Mount of Olives, okay? So, and, and the Mount is just right outside the gates of Jerusalem. They walk out of the city gates, and outside of Jerusalem is this, this small mountain called the Mount of Olives. And it's the Mount of Olives because there's olive, tree, olive trees everywhere. There's good shade. This is also this particular area of the Mount of Olives is called the Garden of Gethsemane. And some of the other Gospels refer to Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just so you know, simple biblical interpretation trick. Sometimes people call contradictions, call things contradictions that aren't contradictions. Jesus was in the Mount of Olives in Luke. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew. How do those two agree? Because the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. Like It's just really simple stuff sometimes. But, but you you may hear at some point, where was Jesus when this happened? The Mount of Olives or the Garden of Gethsemane? That's an easy one. Verse, 30, or verse 40. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, Luke is actually telling a shortened version of the story that Matthew tells. Matthew is much harder on the disciples than Luke is. Because Matthew himself was there. And Matthew remembers in great detail, it's not just once that Jesus comes back to the disciples and tells them to wake up and pray again. He comes back three times to wake up the disciples. But, but Luke adds in 
that the problem with that evening is not just that Jesus is in agony, but that the disciples are sorrowful. Luke explains the disciples falling asleep because they were experiencing sorrow too. Now, these, these two emotional experiences of Jesus on one hand and the disciples on the other hand are significantly different, but you can see the relationship here, okay? Because the disciples have just sat in a meal with the teacher that they followed for three years and heard that he's going to die, that um, they are going to be eating his body instead of unleavened bread. They're going to be drinking his blood instead of the blood of, or the, the wine that represented the blood of the lamb. They thought for their whole lives that the Passover meal was about unleavened bread and lamb's blood. And they find out that night, no, this is actually about my broken body and my blood. And, and it's a little bit of a shocking revelation for the disciples. And then Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. And then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Oh, by the way, Judas, why don't you go ahead and leave and do what you're going to do? And Peter, you're going to deny me. And all of these things, all of these deep, significant revelations are happening over the course of this meal. And they've had a crazy couple of days because every day for this whole week, Jesus has been teaching in the temple and facing opposition from different groups. It's the scribes one day. It's the Pharisees one day. It's the Sadducees another day. And group after group is coming to combat Jesus. And the temperature is rising in Jerusalem. So the celebration that happened on Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's so much tension around the person of Jesus now at this point on Thursday in the, in the, of the week that the disciples... They don't know what's going on anymore. And they're facing sorrow because Jesus has told them, I'm going to suffer. Jesus has told them, my blood's going to be shed. Jesus has told them, be ready, you guys will suffer. And so their sorrow is coming from a lack of information, from partial information and a lack of understanding because they don't know what's in front of them. They just know it's going to be hard. They know that Jesus is going to suffer in some way. They know that Jesus has said he's going to die. They're not really sure what he means by that. And see, the difference in Jesus' agony, Jesus knows exactly what's happening. And the word there, in so Mark uses the word sorrow to describe Jesus. Luke uses the word agony to describe Jesus. Actually, the word agony is stronger in the original language than sorrow. So Luke is not saying that the disciples and Jesus are experiencing anything like the same thing. They're very different experiences. The disciples are experiencing this great mental exhaustion and stress over here. Jesus is facing a much deeper level of anxiety and sorrow than the disciples are. Mark 14, in Mark's telling of this story, Mark 14, one of the times that Jesus comes Back to the disciples, Mark, 13, Mark 14, 34, Jesus says to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. Jesus is, and this is the crazy thing. Jesus said that to his disciples. No wonder they experienced sorrow, but their experience of sorrow in response to Jesus telling them that his sorrow was about to kill him was to just pass out from exhaustion because they didn't know what to do with what they were experiencing. Jesus says, my sorrow is so great that I am at the point of death. And, and, and yes, people can 
die of sorrow. You can get to such a point of despair and dismay that the body stops functioning properly. And, and as, as blood starts to come through his pores in the place of sweat, we see that Jesus is not just in this great place of emotional suffering, but the emotional suffering is affecting his physical functions so much that it becomes physical suffering. And he's not even been beaten yet. He's not on the cross yet. He's, there, there's, no, there's no whips. There's no crown of thorns. There's no spears. All of that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. But at this point, the physical suffering has already come because of his body's response to the great, the great emotional suffering that he is in the midst of. Jesus is suffering already. And why? As I said, the, the disciples... They're suffering to some extent, and their suffering is based on their lack of understanding of all that's going on around them and all that Jesus is saying. Jesus is suffering with full knowledge of exactly what's happening and what's going to happen. Because Jesus knows the plan. Jesus knows that when he prays, I want you to think about this. In the Last Supper, I told you either last week or the week before, that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, 12. On on that last day, he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. But here, he prays a prayer opposite of Isaiah 53.10. And, and I think that is so significant. It's, it's not accidental the way Jesus is praying. He had had Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the suffering servant, he had had it on his mind that very day. And this is what Isaiah 53.10 says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So Jesus, in his mind, has the truth of Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53.10 says, It is the will of God the Father to crush the Son in order to make an offering. And Jesus' prayer in the garden is, Father, if it is your will, If it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew full well what the Father's will was in the moment. He had Isaiah 53 running through his brain, and he knew exactly what the Father's will was. And yet, because of the great anguish that he was experiencing and the great suffering that was going, only going to get worse that evening and the following day, Jesus prayed out of his heart to the closest relationship he had. Because while Jesus was walking on the face of the earth, he was in relationship with the Father. He would regularly separate from the disciples, go out early mornings to pray, to commune with the Father. This relationship was important. And what is important for us As humans, when we face sorrow, comfort, when when we are in agony, what do we need? We need comfort. And so often, when it's emotional pain and emotional agony, we run to the person that is able to emotionally comfort us the best. So when a child is hurt, where do they run? Mine don't run to dad. Dad is not as helpful. But mom... Now, can, can dad do the same things physically in terms of, of cleaning a cut and putting on a Band-Aid and all of those sort of things? Absolutely. But, but the pain of, of the physical injury is, is not just the pain of the physical injury. 
For a child, there's a great emotional component to any pain that is experienced, and therefore you cling to mama because that's the emotional need you have. This is what I want you to see about the great depth of the emotion and the suffering that Jesus is facing. Jesus' great emotional connection was the disciples and his father. And on this night, Jesus becomes alone because, because the disciples fail him. And the father turns away and denies Jesus' request. And, and there's, there's no way around that conclusion here because Jesus as Jesus is praying to the Father for the cup to be removed, what Jesus means is the cup of wrath. Because all through the scriptures, the Bible describes God's wrath as being poured out on to sinners. And Jesus is saying, remove that cup so that cup of wrath is not poured out on me, God, or Father. And the Father doesn't audibly respond. We have no record in any of the Gospels of what God says back to Jesus as Jesus is praying. But we know from Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And we know that within 24 hours of this prayer, Jesus was dead. And Jesus did suffer physically. And so, so we, can't, we can't avoid the fact that the answer to Jesus' prayer to God is no. It is not my will to remove the cup of wrath from you. And that's why it's such good news for us that Jesus ended the prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because what Jesus is saying there is, Father, in the midst of this great agony and pain and sorrow I am facing, I really want you to, to work another plan. But God, if there is no other plan, if this truly is the only way to accomplish the goal, then not my will, but yours be done. And so then the question is, what's the goal? Hebrews will tell us. Hebrews will tell us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. And so this isn't, this isn't Jesus just grinning and bearing it because it's what God told him to do. This was Jesus enduring for joy. And the experience of the garden doesn't take away that joy. What, what Hebrews tells us in conjunction with Luke is that the experience in the garden was so intense that Jesus himself had to fight to hold on to the joy that allowed him to endure. The disciples didn't understand what was happening and faced some level of sorrow. Jesus' full agony knew what the apostles would write about his sacrifice later. Paul would write in, in, in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Jesus knew that, and Jesus knew somebody had to pay, and the person that was paying was him, and it was that very night. Jesus knew that in Romans 5, Paul would write that the result, uh, that, that judgment was coming as death, that death was a result of judgment from God, and Jesus knew that his death would be judgment from God. Jesus knew that 2 Corinthians 5, Paul would write this again years after Jesus died, but in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin. And Jesus knew that on that night, though he had never known sin himself, he was about to take the sin of the world on himself to such an extent that Paul would describe it as Jesus becoming sin. Jesus didn't become sinful. 
but our sins were exchanged and our sins were placed onto him such that he became sin. And he knew that his death would be suffering under the wrath of God. 1 John 2.12, Isaiah 53.10, it was the wrath of God that was being poured out on Jesus that night. Jesus knew full well what he was about to suffer. Jesus knew it was going to be hard. Jesus knew it was going to hurt. But the mental pain, anxiety, and stress that the disciples were suffering was nothing like what Jesus was suffering. But Jesus was not just experiencing the pain because he was paying for the sins of the whole world. Jesus was experiencing the pain because it, him being the sacrifice led to an emotional separation from the loving Father with whom he had perfect communion. Because the Father had to be the one to pour out the wrath. The Father had to be the one who willed to crush Jesus. And so we know that as much as physical pain hurts, that emotional pain of being separated from one that we love is so significant as well. But, but then there's this crazy thing that happens, okay? Because all of this is going on. Jesus is telling his disciple, my sorrow is so extreme, it's about to kill me. You guys can't stay awake. What's going on? And as he's talking to them here in this passage, a crowd approaches in verse 47. And Jesus' attitude changes. Changes. As Jesus is pouring out his heart in the garden, he's ready for what happens next. And when, when he recognizes God is not going to remove the cup of wrath from him, Jesus, all of a sudden, his whole demeanor changes and he proves it over the next few sections. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas was one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Ju Jesus said to him, Judas, why would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Look at Jesus' responses to three different groups of people here. First to Judas. When we are in great agony, there is no betrayal that hurts more than the person with whom you had an intimate relationship. The greater the intimacy of relationship, the greater pain the betrayal causes. And Jesus just calmly, calmly responds to a man whom he loved that was kissing him in order to identify him as the one that was being arrested. Jesus just looks at Judas and says, really, Judas, you're going to betray me with a kiss. This is what you're doing. He calmly exposes Judas's betrayal and sin. And then the disciples, the disciples who just woke up, crazy way to wake up, right? The disciples just woke up, and we know that it's actually Peter. Luke doesn't identify it as Peter, but we know that it's Peter. Peter takes the sword, and Peter's ready, and Peter goes to cut and attack, and Peter ends up cutting a guy's ear off, and Jesus is calm. Not only calms Peter and the other disciples by saying, stop this, but then he calmly goes and he heals the person. Why? Jesus isn't there for a fight that night. Jesus isn't there to defend himself. Jesus isn't, isn't asking the disciples to defend themselves. Now, Peter, 
Peter should really challenge us here, and, and we're, we're going to get to this later, but look at what Peter is willing to do for Jesus in this moment. Peter is ready to kill for Jesus. But then Peter isn't ready for something else here in a minute. Number three in this passage, Jesus calmly confronts the chief priests and elders. says, hey, you guys, we, we've seen each other every day this week in the temple. It's midnight. What are we doing here? Why won't you arrest me when there's people around? Why do you need the cover of darkness? He says, you got clubs and swords out here? Recognize, this is a Jewish crowd. This isn't a Roman crowd. There's not Roman soldiers in here at this point. This is Jewish leadership and Jewish servants that are arresting him. What are you guys doing? You think I'm going to fight you? You think I'm a robber? I'm not here to fight you. And he goes willingly. Jesus goes from a point of sweating blood, deep despair, and agony to incredible calm. And you think this is probably more what the disciples were used to. Probably the reason they were so sorrowful at the beginning of the evening was Jesus was sorrowful, and they hadn't seen that before. And now all of a sudden, he's calm. And right when they're ready to not be calm anymore, Jesus is calm. They're ready to stand up and fight, and Jesus is calm. Verse 54, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. We know this story, guys. They kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Peter sat among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, no, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, a third time, somebody insisted, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. Now, I don't know why Peter's not remembering what Jesus said earlier that evening at this point. But it's not, Jesus predicted this would happen, and Peter denied it. And at least an hour passes between these multiple denials. But again, in verse 60, Peter says, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he finished the third denial, immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now get the, get the image here. They are at the home of the high priest right now. There is a courtyard. There are people warming themselves by the fire in the courtyard. People that don't necessarily know each other. There were lots of extra people in Jerusalem and this week, remember? And Jesus was over in the home being questioned by high priests and elders, being questioned on items of the Jewish law. And there were people that were hanging out by the fire just warming themselves. And it was a mixed bag of people. And three times G G Peter was exposed as somebody who was there with Jesus. Three times he denied him. But the, these two locations were not far away. It was a house and a courtyard of a house. And Jesus, all he does is he just looks at Peter. Verse 61, after the rooster crowed, after the third denial, Jesus simply turns his head and makes eye contact with Peter. And eye contact with the Son of God says a lot. Because the result of eye contact with the Son of God for Peter was, be was bitter weeping. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, why did Peter deny him? Was it because Peter had changed his mind and decided he's not following Jesus anymore? I don't think that's what it was. I think Peter denied out of fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of what came next, fear for his own life, fear for his own protection. He didn't want to be on trial for blasphemy like Jesus was. Fear for his own family. Remember, Peter was married. 
fear of, of whatever the result of this trial would be. Who knows what Peter was experiencing in the moment, but we do know that in some measure it was fear. And here's the scary thing about Peter in this passage on this night, because these two incidents took place hours apart at most. But in one moment, Peter is more than willing to kill for Jesus. But when the opportunity to die for Jesus presents itself, he's not willing. And you know, it's, it's a challenge for us about caring deeply about the, the views that we hold, caring deeply about the truth of the gospel, caring deeply about Jesus or, or anything that we believe. It is easier to kill for something than it is to die for something. And it's a great challenge for us to think through what our commitment to Christ is. Because if, if, our, if us fighting for our views costs somebody else something, I'm okay with that. But if it costs me something, that causes me to pause a lot more. That hurts a lot more. And Jesus is not just calling us to be okay with our fight for our, for our views hurting somebody else, but actually affecting us. Jesus is not just looking for followers who are willing to kill for him. Jesus is looking for followers who are willing to die for him. Jesus is looking for followers who will endure the greatest sacrifice because of their faithfulness in him and their confidence in a better future. Jesus continues calm. Verse 63, there were people that were beating him and mocking him, and they blindfolded him, and they punched him, and they said, teacher, prophesy, who's the one that punched you? And they just mocked and mocked, and he said nothing. And then verse 66, they gathered together, and in this, this trial that Jesus is, is enduring from the hands of the Jews, they're asking him questions. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. And this is Jesus' response. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of God shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. In his calm, Jesus answers the charges of the council. In his calm, Jesus endures the mocking and suffering. In his calm, Jesus just looks directly at Peter without fighting him, without arguing with him. In his calm, uh, Jesus puts, tells Peter to put the sword back. In his calm, uh, Jesus just confronts the sin of the high priest and confronts the sin of Judas without fighting for his rights, without arguing, without any of this. Jesus calmly endures on a night when he was just sweating blood in agony. And recognize, how do you move from a place of great sorrow to a place of great agony? I'll be honest. I move from sorrow to agony, or from, sorry, from sorrow to calm. I've got that wrong. How do you move from a place of great sorrow to a place of great calm? By being comforted. By being comforted by, by somebody. And so for me, if I look at the challenges that I face, just practically simple things, if I look at the challenges I face in life, I can endure a lot when I have a source of comfort and encouragement to calm me. And that's what my wife is. That's who Jess is 
for me. And that's the beauty of the marriage relationship. The beauty of relationships built on, on love and trust and commitment is that you can go from a place of great sorrow and agony over here and because of the love and support of another person, you can move into calmness and recognize though the world rages crazy out there, life is still good in here because of the care and support and sometimes it just takes one other person. But for a Christian, it gets even better than that because it's, it's not just the physical presence of of a spouse or a parent or whoever that person of comfort is. It, is. it is a recognition that that person can never fulfill the level of comfort that we need. We have Christ Jesus himself to comfort us in our sorrow. But, but the point of this passage is that Jesus' sorrow enables us to escape sorrow. Because the sorrows that we feel are nothing compared to what they would, been, would have been had this scene not happened. Jesus' sorrow, number one, allows us to escape the greatest measure of sorrow that we would have to face. But number two, Jesus' sorrow allows him to sympathize with us for the great pain that we do endure. This is what the author of Hebrews 12 tells us. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us because he suffered in every way as we do, but without sin. And and the truth is, he suffered far more than we do, but without sin. And so in our time of suffering, we have two realizations. If not for Jesus' death on the cross and victory over sin that resulted in an empty tomb, then our suffering would be far worse, and it would be eternal. And, and the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. That's one realization. Second realization is that Jesus has been there, and Jesus has endured worse. And so when you need somebody to comfort you, you have somebody to comfort you. And the crazy part about this story is that Jesus didn't have somebody to comfort him. Not until. You know, God sent an angel But God sent an angel as Jesus was enduring what it meant to have the Father pour out wrath on the Son. And the rupture of that relationship was part of what Jesus' emotional grief was. And Jesus had to wait, had to wait to be reunited to the Father and, and, and for the reconciliation to be completed after the victory was won. And Jesus' agony helps us escape agony. But not only do we learn from Jesus' sorrow, we learn from Jesus' calm. Isaiah 53, and I'll have the the band come up as I read from this. Isaiah 53 predicts Jesus' calm. It says in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And the best news about this is that God did not answer Jesus' prayer with another plan. Because the only other plan would have been the cup of wrath for each of us. But because Jesus was silent and calm in his sorrow, 
and suffered for us. So every sin committed by anyone that is in this room or listening to this message, every sin could be atoned for from one source, one life that was given for the sake of all sins. And so for us, here's the chance to receive it, to repent and recognize our sinfulness and receive the new life that comes from Jesus. And in that recognition, in that new life that we receive when he pays for our sins, we now know that we will never experience the depths of sorrow that we could have experienced. We now know that we have a suffering Savior who connects with us and empathizes with us in our suffering. And we now know that whatever situations that cause us sorrow and agony, we can respond with a peace that surpasses all understanding because Jesus, the one who calmly endured his agony, has given us a new life and given us the fullness of his presence in the Holy Spirit. So it's on that basis that we're going to stand and we're going to sing about, about Jesus and about what he provides and accomplishes for our good. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more forever now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness free, my steadfast love, my deep Jesus fled and suffered for my cause.
And Father, we, we confess this beautiful truth that there, there really is no more for heaven now to give because the greatest gift has already been given. The gift of new life, the gift of salvation, the gift of atonement, our sin for His righteousness. Jesus, we praise You for the cross. We praise You for the redemption that allows us to now be called sons and daughters of God and to be declared righteous in His sight. So Father, now as we leave under the blessing that You give us, remind us of these truths every day that we might soak ourselves, soak our minds and our hearts in the truth of the gospel and therefore live as your ambassadors in a world of great pain and sorrow. May we be the calm. May we be the presence that brings peace through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.